Good morning, everybody. Not bad. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, no, that was lousy. Happy Thanksgiving. There you go. That's better. Well, hopefully your Bibles are already open to Revelation chapter 2. It is good to be back having been away for a couple of weeks. I tell you this, traveling is not as glamorous as maybe you think it is, living out of a suitcase in hotels and eating takeout food. Even Pizza Hut, which I love, starts to get tiresome. Um, But I do bring you greetings from quite literally around the world. I have met with pastors in Calgary, in Alaska, in the Northwest Territories, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in Manila of the Philippines. I met with a dear pastor, church planter in Calgary, from the Philippines, and got to talk to him and meet different folks that he's mentoring back in the Philippines. And I just want you, Calvary Baptist, to know how many people are around the world praying for you, for us. And I also met pastors from China who had just recently escaped. I met a pastor from North Korea and who told me just things I had never thought possible. And then, of course, I met pastors from the Middle East as well, and it was just such a joy. So those are one of the blessings of travel, and I just want to remind you of how much people are praying for us. People are aware of Newfoundland and Labrador and all the things that we face, both beautiful and challenging, here in our beautiful city and province of St. John's, Newfoundland. I have decided to do this mini-series. I've already preached to you about the letter to the church at Ephesus and as well to the letter of the church of Smyrna. And today we're going to draw our attention to the letter to the church of Pergamum. And basically my title goes like this, only the gospel is going to protect us from our cultural surroundings. Only the gospel is going to protect us from our cultural surroundings surroundings. And I want you to hang on to that as we get into this on a Thanksgiving weekend, because if anything, I hope you and I can walk away and we'll be very thankful for the Word of God. And the Word of God is as relevant today on October of 2022 as it was when it was written over 2,000 years ago and before that. But I want to ask by starting by asking some questions When I say these kinds of words in our modern context, what jumps to your mind? Words like compromise. It's a big word in today's political culture and our cultural wars. What about a word like hypocrisy, inconsistency, or selfishness? When you hear those words, what comes to mind? Do you see a face? Does it make you think of a political leader or someone? Does it make you think of a family member? Can I be personal and metal? Does it ever make you think of yourself? Does a certain event come to mind? How do you define words like compromise and hypocrisy and selfishness or inconsistency? In their best-selling book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim said this. They asked a large sample group of people an interesting question. Here was the question. What would you do for $20 million? What would you be willing to do for $20 million? Here is what the results were. 25% said they would abandon their family. 
23% said they would be prostitutes for one week. 16% said they would leave their spouse. 3%, if you can believe it, said they would give up their children for adoption for $20 million. And if you can believe that, stranger still, 7% said they would be willing to murder a stranger if they knew they could get away with it. That's the culture we live in. Now, I'm going to be honest, the second half of my week of travel, along with a long day of traveling home, I had a lot of time by myself, and I spent a lot of time praying and reading and studying and everything from the background of this church called Pergamos in this community to the de definition of these words like compromise and hypocrisy and selfishness. And if I'm going to be truthful, not only was this a long week of travel, but it's been a week of soul searching because Few letters in all of the Bible, and especially this letter to Pergamos, have wrecked me like this letter to Pergamos. You can actually see these seven letters. They create a pattern. Remember the first church, Ephesus, where they stood for everything and yet loved nobody. And Jesus says, if you don't return and remember and repent, I'm leaving. And then the last church, the church of Laodicea, who stood for nothing and were self-delusional, Jesus says, I'm not even present. I'm outside the door and knocking, asking to be let in. Then the next two churches bookend, which you have Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only two churches not given any condemnation. But one is weak and about to quit, and they're doubting, and God gives them a word of encouragement. Philadelphia, feeling weak and insignificant, God says to them, I give you a mission, and if God's timing is right for us, by God's grace, our first Sunday in our first church will be the letter to the church of Philadelphia, and I think it is an opt letter for us to know we have a mission as we get, Lord willing, our new facility. The three churches in the middle are very interesting to me because the church of Pergamum is flirting with compromise and hypocrisy and selfishness. We're going to see that in a minute. Next week, the next church, Thyatira, by the way, the only church complimented for their love of all seven is actually in the throes of compromise and hypocrisy and selfishness. And then the next church, Sardis, God actually writes them and says, you're dead in your hypocrisy and compromise and selfishness. And so you see this ever-increasing pattern of drift from flirting with it to being actively involved in it to being dead in it. And so I, I love these churches when we get there. And thus far, as we've looked at the church at Ephesus, a church of loveless orthodoxy, right? They were the classic example of 1 Corinthians 13. They stood and they gave and they served, but they didn't love. And amazingly, I often think that the greatest warning of all seven churches is actually to the church at Ephesus. Because the church at Ephesus that actually stood for everything and yet loved nobody, Jesus says, I'm there, but I tell you, if you don't get your act together, I'm leaving. I think maybe the second greatest and gravest warning is the one given here to Pergamon. If you remember what Celeste read, when Jesus says, if you don't repent as well, 
I will war against you. And I want you to hang on to that and think about the modern church of Canada in 2022. And maybe we are not, what we are calling persecution, what we are calling cultural pushback could very well be that God's Holy Spirit is actually warring against us as professing Christians because we are too busy acting and talking godly while actually involved in compromise, hypocrisy, and selfishness. And this is what we need to look at. Smyrna, the suffering church on the verge of quitting and gripped in fear, this church was reminded of just how great and powerful and gracious Jesus is, and by the way, always will be. I heard a wonderful sermon this week from Colossians. Tony Morita gave a great sermon, and he, he talked about we want to remember that when we're weak, our Savior isn't. And so that's the message to the church of Smyrna. But then we come to Pergamum. If you take a later date of the book of Revelation, somewhere around A.D. 95, if you look at it, Pergamum at that date was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a beautiful and rich city. It was known for three things. It was a political center, a medical center, and an intellectual center. Pergamus boasted a library of over 200,000 books behind only Athens and Alexandria. This was a center of politics and medicine and intellect. But Pergamus was almost no, also known for one other thing. They were famous for their pagan worship and their emperor cult. There were four gods well-known in Pergamos. Number one that many of you have heard is the god Zeus, the Greek god. He was the centerpiece of the Acropolis at Pergamos, and he was considered the king of gods. He was often referred to as the savior king. Next was Athena, the patron goddess of the city, followed then by Dionysus, who was symbolized by a bull, the patron of the dynasty. And last was Ascalispius, the god of healing who was symbolized by a serpent, get this now, wrapped around a sword. If that sounds familiar, many of you involved in the medical profession know our medical sign of this day is patterned after that. Pergamus, by the way, was the first city in AD 29 to build a temple to a living Caesar. And it was Augustus. And they were three times named by Rome, Neocoros, meaning the warden of the emperor it's worship itself. The Roman proconsul for the Asian province was located in Pergamus, and he was given what was called Ius Gladi, which means the power of the sword, which means that the Roman proconsul there could exercise capital punishment, and his sign, by the way, was a sword. So what are we supposed to do with this? By way of setup, as we get into the nuts and bolts of it, the point of this letter to Pergamus and to us can be summarized like this. Are you ready? Sin always promises, but it never pays. Sin always promises, but it never pays. Sin disguises itself as something attractive and refreshing and rewarding, but underneath the false exterior, sin is filthy and robbing, and those who sport with it know only regret. The hotel that me and some of the guys stayed in Denver, beautiful little hotel, but across the street was Denver's premier gentleman club. 
It was called Shotgun Willies. Yeah, I ne- they never claimed to be creative with these uh, uh, titles, right? But it was interesting because we had to go to Target, which was behind it, and we were walking back to the intersection, and a guy that was obviously addicted to alcohol was coming towards us and waited at the intersection with us, double fisting two large bottles of alcohol. And you could tell that he needed what was in those bottles because he was agitated. And it was just a, a, a surreal moment to have this nice hotel, this, this basically in vernacular, this strip club, and then this retail. And by the way, there was a Starbucks and then a Starbuds. Okay, yeah, so you can figure out what Starbuds was, right? I'll give them props for being creative on Starbucks. But you, you have, you know, coffee and hipster and retail and, and, and a hotel meets a strip club and, 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 and basically drug uh, addiction or, or trying to solve your problems through drugs and all these things. And so here you had us guys, five pastors, at an intersection with a dude that was all dressed up in the ultimate armor stuff, and he had his ear pods in, and then this other guy who had a bottle of alcohol in each glass and was just agitated, and you can see this is the world you and I live in. So what is our need? What was the need of, of Pergamum? What's our need? We need to be given in, Calvary Baptist, that we must never flirt with evil. We need to have the false exterior of sin pulled back so we can see it as it is. You see, the fault of Pergamum is the opposite of the fault of Ephesus. And how narrow is the safe path between sin of tolerance and the sin of intolerance? See, Ephesus didn't tolerate anything, but they were more proud of their stands than they were in love with their Savior. Pergamus, you're going to find out, is in love with the Savior, but is willing to tolerate sin. And this is what you and I need to come to. And we can see it right in the letter. If you look at verse 12 as the opening up, and I want you to see the description of knowledge and judgment. Look at it. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... Jesus wanted this church to know that he and he alone with power and unlike these gods in Rome who needed an actual sword and armies to execute their, execute their authority, Christ has to simply speak because it's the one who has the two-edged sword. Well, we know back from Hebrews that the two-edged sword is this book. And don't you find it fascinating that a city known for having the sword of Rome, a city known where one of its gods was their, their sign was a sword, where someone has already given up their life for the gospel, Jesus writes to this church and says, I want you to remember, I'm the one that when I speak, I speak its power. This church would later read in Revelation 19, Jesus would come and judge using only his voice. Hear what John writes in Revelation 19. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of his righteousness and the righteousness of Almighty God. Jesus wants Pergamum to realize the power of God's word when you and I are tempted to think about the power of the culture. When you and I look at the power of social media, 
and the power of substances and the power of acceptance and the power of affirmation. And we think if I just am accepted or I'm just affirmed or I just get this or I just have that or I'm just welcomed into this, then I'll have power. And God says to this church, no, 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 you need to realize where real power is. It's in the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, listen to this. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Why is the word of God so important? Because the word of God and only the word of God pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. You see, folks, listen, the hardest thing you're ever going to do in life is be honest with yourself. In a culture of lying and deceit, we lie to ourselves more than we lie to anybody. I'm okay. I can handle this. I got this. I'll make it through. Or we convince ourselves, I'm not loved. I'm not worthy. I have no value. Only God's word will tell you, you are weak, but you have a strong Savior. Only the word of God says you are valuable and you have worth because God loves you and he created you and Jesus Christ lived for you and died for you. Only this book promises you life, not death, and can never lie. God cannot, so his word can't lie. So while our entire city, our province, our country, and our world is chasing lies, and it's as insane and asinine as when you watch a dog chase its tail. Whatever happens when the dog catches his tail? Pain. And so many of us are chasing the lies of the world, thinking it will give us peace or rest or comfort or value or purpose or ease or identity. And the problem is, I have never met the person who has chased the world, who is still not looking for peace, looking for rest, looking for answers, and not satisfied. Only Christ can. Rome needed a sword. God needs but his voice. And do you and I here today realize the awesome power, the authority, and the judgment of Jesus Christ? Because this leads us into verse 13, where we see God commend them for their steadfastness. And I want you to see this because it's absolutely beautiful. I think this is absolutely beautiful. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, in some translations you might even have faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This was the commendation of steadfastness. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. One man writes, James Hamilton says, between these references to Satan's throne and dwelling in Pergamum, Jesus commends the church because in spite of the bad influence of their neighborhood, he says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. So in spite of their proximity to Satan's throne, they hold fast to the name of Jesus. They hold fast to Jesus' name. means they are conducting themselves for Jesus' glory. And God's glory is very important in the seven letters to the churches of Asia. 
Back in chapter 2, verse 3, Jesus said, You are enduring patiently and bear up for my name's sake. In verse 13, you hold fast my name. In chapter 3, verse 8, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In chapter 3, verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God and my own new name. So here's the question for all of us here today, both here and online. Here's a question. Jesus cares about his reputation. In what ways does our lives indicate that we care about it too? Do you and I care about Jesus' reputation? How much do you want to know about the sufficiency of the Word of God? J.C. Ryle would tell us how powerful it is. It proves all things. It measures all things. It is to be compared by all things. It weighs all things in the balance. It examines all things and it tests all things. And every single time, the Word of God will ring true. And this is what you and I need to realize. And so Jesus commends them because they were loyal. Christians would not burn a pinch of incense to Caesar when it was considered more an act of hatred of the human race and disloyalty to Rome. You see, this is what was going on. If you wanted to go into the market, if you wanted to go to the mall, if you wanted to do business, for instance, if we were going today to Costco, and on your way into Costco, there was a couple of little things there and a burning flame. And if you wanted to show that you were a good citizen, you would take a pinch of incense and hail Caesar and throw it in there and it would be a little flash and a puff, and you would go in. Christians wouldn't do it. And what, wouldn't you know what, what was happening? They were saying, if you didn't do this, then you weren't a politically loyal person. You weren't a good citizen. Can I ask, does that not sound familiar to our world today? When Christians try to stand up, whether it be our view of life or our view of what makes life qualitative, and all of a sudden when we take a stand, it's not that we disagree anymore. Now the culture says, no, 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 no. Now you're not a good political citizen. Now you don't care about humanity, when in actuality, true Christians should love humanity and value human life from the cradle to the grave. But you see, it's very subtle. We've seen this done in the last two and a half years with masks, vaccines, mandates, your view of vaccination your view of life, your view of politics, who you vote for, all of a sudden we do not disagree anymore as people. Unless you agree, then you're accepted and you're, you're politically loyal and, and you care for humanity. And if you disagree, then we dehumanize you and you don't have value. So while this is a scary time for us as Christians, let me also tell you, this is a golden opportunity because as Christians, we can let our light shine and show a bunch of people who are hurting and starving and looking for life and love and value, and only the church can offer that legitimately. And yet, we can be tempted to compromise. Jesus also compliments them because of their faithful witness. He makes reference to Antipas. Grant Osborne says to remain true to Jesus' name means to live up to the responsibility of this new identity and to resist the lure of this pagan world. 
So Pergamum took on the whole persona of Christ's name. Then they held it firmly and they were willing to stand up and stand out. They were willing even to fight for the name of Jesus, not to fight over theological nuances. And don't ever forget that the first century church was actually looked at as a cult, as a superstition, and as atheists for being politically disloyal. And they endured under persecution. Notice this. He says that you've stood the test of Antipas, who was his faithful witness, even unto death. Tradition tells us that Antipas was burned or roasted alive in a brass bull. Now, don't forget, Dionysus was symbolized by a bull. And so here is all of the commendations. They were faithful. They were loving. They stood up for the test. And yet, in verses 14 and 15, we see there is a condemnation of compromise. Now, this is where the letter gets uncomfortable. Look at what John says on behalf of Christ. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Why? Verse 15. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so here's what he says. These three things that I started my sermon with. He starts by comparing a group of people in this church to an Old Testament counterpart, a false prophet by the name of Balaam. You can read about him in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, and he comes again in Numbers chapter 31. But the true groups mentioned here, along with what we'll see next week in Thyatira, a woman by the name of Jezebel, the wife of Ahab the king, all combine to infiltrate the church and draw them away. And what does this drawing away do? It ends up leading them to three things. Idol worship, sexual immorality, and impurity. So let's break it down. I asked you at the beginning, what comes to mind? What face, what person, what event do you see when you hear words like compromise, hypocrisy, or selfishness? So Jesus says, Pergamum, I love you. You have stood for me. You've defended me. But there's a problem. There's this infiltration now of compromise. Now, in the 21st century where we live, what is compromise? Are you ready for this? Compromise is simply changing the question to fit the answer. Again, Grant Osborne writes, The church at Pergamum can be compared to the church of the day in the midst of the pressures of the secular world. Though we have nothing comparable to the imperable cult, we do, however, have a secular society that places a great deal of pressure on Christians to compromise and conform. And here's a big word for you. And a syncretism, which basically means we want to take our religion and we want to take the world's ideas and we'll mush it together so we can all live in harmony. That's what syncretism means, all right? A syncretism similar to that faced by the Christians. In other words, while evangelicalism is supposed to be at a quote-unquote all-time high in Canada and the United States, in my 50 years of living, Christianity has seldom had less effect on society. And why? Because on the whole, it is hard to tell the Christians from the non-Christians by their lifestyle and worse, their attitudes. Let me give you quick seven steps that lead to compromise in the life of a Christian. Number one, a failure to commit ahead of time to do the right thing. If you remember a couple of months ago, we read through the book of Daniel. 
And in Daniel chapter 1, what did it tell us about Daniel when he was shipped off to Babylon? It says, Daniel purposed in his heart ahead of time that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's meat. If you don't get up every day and read your Bible and pray and say, I am a child of God. My value is is found in Christ. I have purpose and I have meaning and I'm going to live that out. Trust me, when you get out into the everyday nastiness of life, you will react just like everybody else reacts. Two, underestimating evil and flirting with dangerous temptations. When did this become the norm of the church? How close can I get to sin without calling it sin? How much can I do before I'm married that's not bad until I get married? How much movies, how many movies can I watch? How much television and Netflix and Prime and all these can I binge with? How much money can I have, possessions? How much control do I want? How much ego can I feed and still call myself a Christian? When it used to be, I want to be like Christ. I want to be in the world but not of it. See, that's very different from legalism. Legalism is I'm going to make myself look good so I can have power and influence over you and make you feel less than me and make you want to feel like you've got to be like me. And by the way, that's too many churches in this province and city. Clean yourselves up, look good, and then come to church and maybe we'll like you and accept you. But maybe in doing that, we have swung the pendulum so far to the other side that says, come everyone, come anybody, and we'll live whatever way we want. And as long as we sing a few popular hymns and we read the Bible and we go rah, 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 then we're good. And as I said, I've quoted my friend on this. If the church is your hobby, you've got a lousy hobby. Number three, it's a failure to recognize the numerous forms of compromise lurking at every corner of life. If you don't realize how much tomorrow morning when you get up and you go work in the world, how often you will be tempted to laugh at something you know you shouldn't laugh at. Now, that doesn't mean you're like, hey, you know, I'm not talking about that. It's just being different. And, and I hesitate to do this, but it's so subtle. Many of you know I, I, I love to get my hair cut. I can't, I can't lie. And maybe I need to confess that it's sinful. I don't know. I just, I love to get it cut. And I'm down at Fogtown all the time. And they know me down there. They call me Rev. And, and, and I, I was there. I got home at 3 a.m. on Friday. And first thing, uh, Friday afternoon, I was down to Fogtown. I couldn't wait to be there and all this stuff. And one of the owners was there and we were chatting and, and she's got little babies and they were talking about daycare and all these types of things and schooling. And, and we were just chit-chatting. They were asking me my opinion on stuff. And, and as she was cutting the hair, she was talking about her frustration with daycares and government-funded subsidies and all these things. And she let loose with some profanity. And I never said anything, but it was amazing to me because by the end of my haircut, as I went to go pay for it, she came out and followed me and she said, Rev, I, I need to apologize. I don't know why I said that. Normally, I never swear. I never said anything to her. I never said, you know, don't, don't do that in front of me. It offends me. I didn't do any of that. I just just live my life. And I talk about my church and I talk about my Savior and I talk about loving St. John's and I talk about the burdens that I have for this city and the hurt and the pain that's in the city and the inconsistencies and the lies and the deceit that's in the city. And from that, that little, little moment by moment by moment, living out the gospel, she felt compelled to come to me and say, I, I didn't mean to swear in front of you. 
And it opened up a glorious opportunity instead of judgmentalism to say to her, well, honey, you don't need to apologize to me. But I said, I said to her, I said, you know, I do find it funny that something twinged in you a little bit of guilt. And whenever you're ready, I'd love to tell you where that guilt might have come from. See, that's not self-righteousness. That's just living out the gospel. When we fail you to recognize the smooth flatteries and enticing fantasies of temptation. When we succumb to the slick rationalizations of James chapter 1. When we deliberately choose to give in to sin. And when we fail to consider the costly consequences of sin. And so what happens next is Jesus says, your hypocrisy is exposed. He says, I have this against you. Look at what he says. You hold to the teachings of immorality. You have followed the way of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And what this was, was saying you were something, but actually being something else. In my studies, I read this, a rather pompous looking deacon was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. And he asked this question, why do you think people called me a Christian, the man said. And after a moment, one youngster said, maybe it's because they don't know you. A recent study in USA Today said that 72% of adults who don't go to church even on holidays actually say this. Don't go to church even on holidays, but 72% said God is a higher or supreme being, and I believe he actually exists. And just as many, 72% said the church is full of hypocrites. Additionally, 44% agreed with this statement. Christians, get on my nerves. The survey was conducted by LifeWay Research and was picked up by US Today, USA Today. Now, I know some of you might, you might say, but Steve, listen, if, it weren't for such, if we weren't such legalists and so narrow-minded, then many in the world would come to Christ. And while that might even be true or have an element of truth to it, by no means is it exclusively true. Because many in our world, it's the language and proclaimed faith of many Christians who then act absolutely no different than they do. That's the problem. The world does not have a problem with us being imperfect. The, church, the world has a problem with people in the church claiming to be perfect while knowing we're imperfect. And this leads to compromise. They say one thing and do another. We get angry and hold grudges. We look out for number one. Watch and listen and go to the same things and places that the world does in some sort of sanctified, pompous bliss of forgiveness simply because they believe they've said a prayer and thus they're in. And I'm going to tell you, if you think because you've prayed a sinner's prayer that that gives you a license to sin, like you're the James Bond of Christianity, you are sorely mistaken. Because the last time I checked, 2 Corinthians says this, Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I heard a Teen Challenge graduate quote that verse at her graduation just a few weeks ago. But notice, compromise and hypocrisy are really selfishness at its core. Folks in this church had become all about them. What suited them? What was best for them? The church in Jesus was great as long as it meant something good for them. And it didn't cost them anything. 
they had watched someone die, and they said, okay, you know what? I want Jesus, and I want to live in heaven, but I don't want to die. So listen, guys, there's got to be a way for us all to just coexist. Listen to what God says to Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel 33. Son of man, your people are whispering behind your back. They talk about you in their houses and whisper about you at the door saying, come on, let us have some fun. Let's go hear the prophet tell us what the Lord is saying. So they come pretending to be sincere and sit before you listening, but they have no intention of doing what I, God, tell them. They express love with their mouths, but their hearts seek only after money. They are very entertaining God, you are very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays, pay, plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't do it. And when all these terrible things happen to them, as they certainly will, then they will know a prophet has been among them. Calvary, listen, compromise will always lead to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy always gives birth to selfishness. Sadly, when this takes over in a church, we totally lose our focus. I wanted us, this is October, it's the month of Thanksgiving. It's a month for us to love other people. We're going to give, we're going to ask you to bring non-perishable food items for the rest of this month so we can give it to the food bank that's operating out of the church. By God's grace, we will own in just a matter of days. But Randy Pope in his book called The Intentional Church recounts an interesting phone call he received He says, I received a phone call from a man who was moving his family to Atlanta and that his work would allow him to live anywhere he chose in the city. He decided to make that decision based on his choice of a church. And because time did not allow him to visit churches in Atlanta, he was doing this. He was church shopping over the phone. And he proceeded to make the following statement and then ask a question. I have heard that your church is highly committed to reaching the unchurched. And then he added, don't get me wrong, I am too. But, But then he said, but I need to know if the church's commitment to reach the unchurched could in any way hinder my needs or the needs of my family from being met. Pope would also point out something that is similar in his ministry, and I've noticed this too. He said, that he had had numerous people leave the church feeling that their needs as believers had not been met. But then in all of his years as a pastor and in ministry, not one time did anyone come and complain about the ineffectiveness of the church as a mission. Ouch. In fact, he said, we have never lost a single member because we were failing, failing to reach the lost with the gospel. But he said, I have lost many members because they said I was failing to meet their needs. And notice in verse 16, the call to repentance. The call to repentance. He says to them, therefore, repent. Repent. Have a change of mind. A turning in direction, a turning in focus. And he says, and if not, I will war against you. Jesus calls this church and he's calling you and I to repent of our closets of compromise and hypocrisy and selfishness. If not, he will fight against us. And can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine what it means to have God push against you? 
Are you wrestling with anger or bitterness, a lack of forgiveness? Are you always feeling like you're pushing against the prick, so to speak, of the gospel? You can't find in, in with the church, you can't find acceptance or calm. Maybe it's not everybody else's fault. Maybe you've got to ask yourself, where is my compromise and my hypocrisy and my selfishness? Is there anything left unconfessed in your life or mine? Is anything in the closet of your life and mine that we haven't given over to Christ? The Ephesians, repentance is so much more than simply saying, I'm sorry. It's a change of mind and action. Can I ask everyone here this morning, have you ever been able to say, I'm wrong and I need mercy and I need grace and I need forgiveness? Because I meet a lot of people, me included, that go, I'm wrong, but. I made a mess of my life, but you don't know about my parents. I've made a mess of money, but you don't understand the government and taxes. I've made a mess of my job, but you don't know what my boss is like or what my work environment. Listen, do you know how freeing it is to just go, no, I'm a mess and I need Jesus because that's the one that Jesus says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember what I've told you? How many times, and I'm living my life by this. This is how I know you're struggling with sin. If you are blaming other people, if you are making excuses, if you're hiding or you're deflecting, you're not owning your sin. But you know how great Jesus is when you can simply go, here I am, Lord, a broken mess. No more excuses, no more blaming, no more deflecting, and no more hiding. I'm yours. And Jesus says, come to Daddy. I love you. I lived for you. I died for you. I reigned for you. The ultimate shame of our current churches is that we often tear our Christianity. We make doctrines out of standards. We make tests of fellowship out of preferences. And yet we never deal with actual sin. We argue over worship. We argue over uh, polity and, and focuses and ministries and passions. And yet, where is our weeping and our wailing for the lost? What do you think would bring you more satisfaction? A church that met all your needs or attending a church where you were obsessed with meeting the needs of others? Why do you think Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive? Why do you think Jesus could pray what he prayed? Why do you think Philippians says what it does? That he who did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but laid down his reputation, laid down his power, laid down his godness, and became a servant to everybody, even to the point of death on a cross. And then it says, therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And it doesn't mean we don't tell each other the truth. It doesn't mean we don't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean we don't challenge each other with our, our, our sexual identity or our marriages or our families or our money or our preferences or any of these things. But it means that we understand we live by the promise of the gospel, not by the weight of the law. 
And thus, there's the promise of provision. And just very quickly, notice what he says. I'm going to give you hidden manna. I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, guys, I could keep you here till next week with all the commentators' arguments over this. But I think I, what I have settled on, I think I'm, I, I like. I'm the one preaching, so you're going to get what I found. And you can argue with me later, all right? The amazing thing about Christ is that he never leaves his church with the negative. And I don't want you to leave here with the negative. He always warns, he even disciplines, he always though ends with a restored relationship, an invitation, and a promise. And he says, I will give you hidden manna. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he or she that comes to me will never hunger. I'm the one that gives you everything. These Christians face the temptation to compromise, to gain acceptance. And in many cases, by being accepted meant they'd have easier access to food. But Jesus says, I will give you something that will fuel you, that will shock the world. And so, as I've told you, one of my most profound experiences when I was in Russia, and I was in the Republic of Chavashia, and I met with a church planter there and his wife, and his wife was a seamstress who worked Monday to Saturday, 8.30 to 6.30, and she got paid $100 a week. And I went to their home. And they fed us with the simplest thing of some yogurt, some borscht, which is a a beet soup, and some deli meats and cheese. And we ate all that up. And as the lady, the hostess was going back, I noticed when she opened her fridge, the fridge was completely empty. And I was mortified. So I went to my translator, and I had some American money in my my pocket. I had several hundred dollars, and I wanted to give it all to the the man and his wife. And my my, uh, translator said, Steve, do not do this. Do not give them this money. If you want to bless them, give it back to the head church you'll go back to, and he'll make sure. But if you give them this money, you will rob them of the joy of serving you. Where is that here? Where is that with me? We're so busy. As Shrek said, or Donkey said, you're wrapped up in your layers, onion boy. All about what we want. Not looking and acknowledging our compromise and our hypocrisy and our selfishness. When we are the 1% of the world's population... We are the richest people on planet Earth. The big article on the news was that we might pay $12 more for our turkey dinners today. And I'm not making light of inflation. But for the most part, we can handle it. And for those around us that can't, we can all make sure they can handle it. Where's the unmitigated satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And my favorite part is he says, I'll give you a white stone. You got to realize in Pergamos, they celebrated games like many other Roman cities and the victor was given a white stone to gain him admittance to the reward ceremony. As well in the legal system, jurors were given a white or a black stone and they used to cast a white or a black stone into an urn for guilt or acquittal. So Jesus says to this church, listen, I will give you a white stone. You will have admittance to the heavenly supper and reward ceremony that will never end. And I will declare you innocent. This is the promise 
of God to you and I. So we must guard against compromise and hypocrisy and above all, this selfish me first mindset in our churches. Because when we get selfish, we flirt with hypocrisy. When we're hypocrites, we will give way to compromise and we will move as we'll see this week to next week to the next week. We'll flirt with it, we'll live in it, and then we'll be dead in it. And so lastly, where is your character? Who are you? Where is your integrity? How you live? Where's your motivation? What influences you? I want you to remember this. Augustine said, my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and in his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. God's answer to the church of Pergamon was this, human wisdom does not derail divine sovereignty, and human rebellion cannot frustrate divine sovereignty, and human ingenuity ultimately plays into the hands of divine sovereignty. God really does rule and super rule our world, so be encouraged, all things really do work together for good. So, don't compromise, don't be hypocrites. And don't be selfish. Rather, be honest. Be transparent. Be weak. Be humble. Be transparent. Because you've got a name that no one can take from you. And you don't need an, activi- uh, an activist group or a, or a political group to give you an identity. God does. You have hidden manna and a white stone and a name written in the Lamb's book of life that no one can take away. So here's my challenge to me and to us as Christians at Calvary. Why don't we start today and live like it and stop being so worried about Satan because Satan and the world is doing what they can, all they have. This life is as good as it gets for the world. I don't feel anger towards it. I feel compassion. I don't want to be incessantly right. I want them to know there is a better way. So let's not give up or give in. Let's stand up, let's step out, and let's step large for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, again, I beg of you that my friends and my family and my church family will hear, have heard a better sermon than I could preach. But, Lord, I do know and I trust your word because, Lord, this word has convicted me. It has taught me. It has even challenged me. And, Lord, I believe that men and women here have heard the word of God, and not because I preached it, but because your word is living and powerful, and you are the one with the sharp two-edged sword in your mouth. And so, Lord, if any man or woman here has been convicted in any way, they've looked at themselves, they felt that sting of guilt. That is not a bad thing. That is you telling them you love them, inviting them to be in a relationship with you, to enjoy the hidden manna, to trust in that white stone. And so, Lord, if there's a man or woman here that doesn't know you, if there's a man or woman here or a couple or a family that has felt the sting of running from you or felt that tension of compromise, hypocrisy, or selfishness, if there's someone that has doubted and wonder, do I, do I count? Does anybody notice me? Do I have purpose or meaning? Does my life matter? And the answer is yes.
because of Christ. As we sing this last song, as we respond in giving, may we respond in prayer and hearts that say, Lord, speak to me, show me, change me. In Jesus' name, amen.